So let's get into this. We're in a series leading up to Easter called Broken. And we're talking about brokenness in a few different ways. We're talking about the broken body of Christ. Um, We're talking about the broken state of our own soul and really our need for the Lord. So this week, um, I get to introduce a really special story and a special character where Jesus gives, I believe, some of the most important teaching to us that has led to us all being here today. So I'm excited to share this story with you. So we're going to go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And in John, we see an introduction of this character, and the man's name was Nicodemus. Now you may remember two weeks ago, um, Casey uh, taught on Jesus in the story where he went into the temple, and he, we call it, he cleansed the temple. He was turned over tables, and it's one of the most um, hard-to-understand stories of Jesus' behavior, where we're like, what's going on? What's Jesus doing? This seems like anger. It's hard to reconcile with everything that we saw about his behavior, even his personalities in some sense, right? It's a hard story to reconcile. Um, I want to note this in John's record is a chapter before what we're going to read today and where Nicodemus came to Jesus. And I think it's a really interesting point just in reflection on this that after Jesus, at least in John's record of this, after Jesus did that work in the temple, the next thing John wrote was a temple leader coming to Jesus in the night. I just think it's an interesting reflection, right? You would think there would be... um, no less a time, a man who was leading in the temple, and um, in, in Nicodemus' position, he was a Pharisee, um, and he was also uh, had a leadership position, right? So he understood the law, he was trained in the law, um, but he was also a part of the Sanhedrin, so he had leadership in the Jewish law. It was after what Jesus did there that Nicodemus came to Jesus. It seemed like there would be no other time that Nicodemus could be more upset at Jesus' behavior, Right? It just goes to show maybe there was some more to the story here, right? And maybe, maybe there were some um, Pharisees or Sadducees who were looking at what was going on in the temple and maybe also disagreed with some of the behavior. Just food for thought that I had in studying this. So we're going to go into John chapter 3. I'm going to read through and I'm going to make some comments. Um, so now there is a man, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So he was, like I said, he was a scholar. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, it wasn't insisted for both to be the case for a, for a Pharisee, um, but this was the case for Nicodemus. We also believe, historically, Nicodemus was uh, young, relatively young in, in this time. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. What's Nicodemus saying? Nicodemus is saying that we're seeing the works and the signs you're doing. And he says, we, not I here. So clearly there were other Pharisees uh, and people in the Jewish leadership who were saying, this man has to be from God. Pharisees believed in the signs and wonders that God did, unlike the Sadducees. And they they were having conversations behind closed doors. And they were saying, This has got to be from God. There's no way a man could be doing this in his own power. So we'll keep going on. Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
interesting conversational pivot here, right? Because normally when we see Jesus encountering religious leaders, things kind of get adversarial, right? It's usually Jesus coming to them, and when they present a case, he refutes what they're saying with the true context of what God meant in the law, right? Wasn't the truth here in this circumstance? To repeat the verse, Nicodemus had come in the night, right? So it was, a, it was a time that was separate from a public setting. We don't know why exactly Nicodemus did that, but we can, we can draw, and I believe that Nicodemus had his heart was moving towards Jesus and what he was doing, but there was too much public pressure, so he came to Jesus in the night with this. And I think Jesus recognized this in the response that he gave to Nicodemus. He didn't, he didn't jump in and say, yeah, I'm from God, and here's the problem with your law. That's not what Jesus did here with Nicodemus. So he said to him, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, listen, listen here. So we, we're in a 21st century church. I think most of the people who walk through the doors, maybe not everyone, maybe some of you, this is the first time you've heard the concept of born again, right? That phrase. Let's, we got to understand and recognize this is something that Nicodemus has never be- heard before. He's a scholar in the law and around religion. He has never heard this phrase, born again? I mean, that doesn't even make any sense. So, so that's where the conversation goes on. Nicodemus said to him, uh, how can a man be born when he is old? He can't enter into his mother's womb for a second time and be born, can he? So he's recognizing just the oddity. He's, he's really asking Jesus, what, what do you mean here? And Jesus answered, and he used this phrase again, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what did Jesus mean by water and Spirit? See, Jesus is using some interesting phrases here that are new to Nicodemus and new to us when we're, when we're going through this text. What does he mean, modern spirit? So some believe, and, and I'm getting into a little bit of teaching here, I understand. Some believe that um, when Jesus said water and spirit, he means baptism and um, then also being born of the spirit. That could be the case. However, I, I feel this case is stronger that what Jesus is doing is he's following this parallel of being born physically and then needing to be born again spiritually. Now, when you think of being, when Jesus says being born of water, um, this is a case, anyone here who has had a baby, you would understand this, right? You're getting to nine months of pregnancy, your due date's coming up, or your due date is passed, and you're at home, and then all of a sudden, something breaks. What breaks? Water. So, born of water. Children uh, in their mother's womb are surrounded by a water substance. So I think that's what Jesus is saying. However, that's not all that important to our message today um, when he's talking about water and spirit. So what was new to Nicodemus here, though, was the spirit side of that teaching, if that makes sense. So Jesus goes on and said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed to you uh, that I say to you, excuse me, that you must be born again. And Jesus says, The wind blow where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it's coming from and where it's going. 
so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus, what are you saying here, right? I mean, this we're getting into some different analogies all throughout this passage. What is Jesus saying? What he's saying is, we see a spiritual birth, but there's also a spiritual birth and a rebirth in us that is something, and when he's using the wind analogy and where it's coming from and going, we don't see it, right? It's not something that's visible to our eyes or that we perceive in that way. It's something that's outside of what we can visibly understand with our eyes. It's a new concept. So Jesus is saying, don't be amazed that I'm saying you must be born again. And Nicodemus replies, and I love this, um, because I can just imagine the way he would say this. How can these things be? I mean, how can these things be? So Jesus, really interestingly, pivots what he's explaining to something that Nicodemus understands. What I love in this story is that Jesus never is getting adversarial here with Nicodemus. He's really explaining it to him. So he goes from something Nicodemus is having trouble understanding to something he knows Nicodemus will understand. And this is what he says uh, after Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So, here's a new concept, even more new to us, right? A lot of us in the 21st century church, we may get the born-again side, but now we're going to Nicodemus' framework, and Jesus is talking about this story of Moses lifting up a serpent. What is he saying here? So there's a story in November, uh, November, (laughs) too much winter going on, (laughs) in the book of Numbers, in uh, chapter 21, there's a story from the uh, Jewish people, as they were in the wilderness, they'd walked out of their slavery to the Egyptians, and they were traveling towards the land of Canaan, and they had been in the wilderness for 39 years. So in Numbers 21, 4 through 9, I'm going to read these five verses. Uh, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of the land of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. Understand they were in a desert area. And they said, and we loathe this miserable food. I'll touch on that in a second. The Lord then sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that the people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses then, after these serpents had been through the land and biting people and they were dying. They came to Moses and said, we've sinned, because we've spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord, that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. So interesting here. The Israelites, and I want to explain the context here. Like I said, they're at the very end of this journey, a 40-year journey from Israel to the land of Canaan, what they called their promised land that God had promised to them. They had actually, right before this story, had gone right up to the door of Canaan. And you see here in this earlier verse that I read, um, that they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea. So right before this, they had actually had their first battle and their first victory 
as an Israelite army. And, the, and this victory was against the first Canaanite king that they encountered. Then they come out of that. They've won. They're feeling good. And God tells them to do this. To set out from Mount Hor, which is right on the edge of the promised land. Right what God had promised them. Back by the way of the Red Sea. Now, think about this. If you know the story, where had the Israelites come from 39 years before this? The Red Sea. God was sending them on a path that went back to where they started. Yet on this 39-year journey, what they didn't comprehend is they were really almost there. Because within the year, they were going to reach their destination. After 39 years. And they start complaining. Because they're going backwards. God, we're going backwards. What's going on here? They say, there's no food, no water, and we loathe this miserable food. What are they talking about, this miserable food? They're talking about a miracle God had done for them. 39 years earlier when they entered the wilderness, um, they didn't have any food. So God was working this miracle for 39 years of every day, except for on the Sabbath. Which, um, they would go outside, and in the morning, there would be manna on the ground. And they'd collect it. Bread. That was the way that they had their nutrients for 39 years throughout this process. But somewhere along the way, with this miracle they were seeing in front of them day after day, they started complaining about it. It wasn't good enough anymore for them. Interesting thing there. So God sends the serpents, right? And the serpents come, and this is hard to understand the nature of God. Why would God send serpents? And we're not going to touch on that today. I'm not going to be able to explain that. We'll leave that one for Mike next week. Um, so they realize we've done wrong. They go to Moses. Moses, uh, we messed up. We've sinned. We're speaking against you. We're complaining. Would you intercede with God? God, would you take the serpents away? Would you take them away? Seems like the solution, right? Lord, we repent. Take this pain in front of us away. Interesting, though. That's not what God did. He didn't do what they asked. God heard their uh, repentance and their heart of repentance. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, then uh, he'll look at it and he'll live. So he literally told him, Make this bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And if you're bitten by a snake and you look on it, you'll live. Now, Here's my question that I have for God someday. Why wouldn't you take the snakes away? Why the serpent on a stick? Why did he do it that way? few considerations here. The Israelites first were complaining about the things they once saw as a good, gracious gift from God. God had given them manna for food. They'd wake up in the morning and it was there. And yet here they are complaining. 39 years after they had started. Second observation and consideration here, uh, they were so close to the finish line of a difficult season, yet their complaining led to many of them dying off from these snake bites. Third consideration, when the uh, serpents came, the people begged, Moses, have God take take the serpents away, and he didn't. Instead, here's what God did, and I think you'll see the parallel here as I read this. 
God didn't remove what they perceived to be the problem in front of them. He made a source of healing in the middle of the serpents. They just had to turn to it, looking at it in humility, and recognize their need to look on the serpent for their healing. In the same way, God doesn't take us away from a world of sin, but gives us a means to redemption in the Son of Man, Jesus, being lifted up and crucified. That's because the problem we have, you and I have, it's not the world we're living in. Jesus didn't come to take us out of the world. Instead, he was lifted up that we could look to him for our healing and our redemption. So, backing up now. Jesus had told this story to Nicodemus, and he's telling him this story of the serpent being lifted up, and all of a sudden, I imagine, Nicodemus got it. Why God didn't take the serpents away. It was a sign to now be fulfilled in this time. So we're back to Nicodemus. But here's what Jesus said to him next, after he realized that. God didn't send the Son, so he's talking about himself. The Father didn't send me into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought or worked out and accomplished in God. So what Jesus goes right to with Nicodemus is this story of redemption. And as we get close to finishing, I'm going to have a shorter message today, and we're going to worship a little bit. Um, I want to tell you a story of redemption that came to my heart this week. It just really impacted me to go back to this story and to read it again. And I think there's an incredible parallel as we step in now to Holy Week, the week leading up to Jesus' death and where we're going to celebrate Easter. It's such an amazing story, I think, for us to look at and reflect on when we're talking about the redemptive work of God. So I want to tell you about a man named Hosea. So imagine this. There's a young boy uh, living in Israel. He's a Jew. And as a young boy, he's hearing the teaching from the Lord, from the Word of God in the Pentateuch. And his heart's starting to be moved towards God. I imagine, just, just me imagining Hosea as a five, six, seven, eight-year-old boy. He's got this fire inside of him. Some of you have experienced that fire for the Lord inside of him. And there's a zeal in his heart. And somewhere along the way, he realizes, I've got a special calling from God. There's something different in me. Lord, I want to hear your voice. I'm willing to be a beacon and a light. He's living righteously. He's doing everything that the Lord instructs him to do. And finally, 
when he's a young man, the day comes and the Lord speaks to Hosea. First time he's hearing God. This is Hosea chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take for yourself a wife of harlotry. That word means sexual immorality. And have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went, Hosea did, and he took Gomer, the daughter of um, Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now think about this. A righteous kid, following the Lord, wants to hear his voice. God's first instruction to him as a boy. I want you to go take a wife of harlotry. Take her as your own. Man, this, this makes me scratch my head, right? Because it seems like this, is a, this is, goes against the grain of what I believe the formula should be of good godly relationships. This week in youth group, we're talking about dating, right? I mean, God came to this young man and said, go take a wife of harlotry. Now, we don't know um, what this woman Gomer's story was before this. Uh, it's not super clear in the text, so I, I have to derive some things to try to express. Many have had different ideas about this. Um, I think in studying this, most likely um, she was living in some sort of promiscuity like uh, people live in the world today. She could have also been um, a, uh, a temple prostitute to Baal. This was a thing in a religious cult in Baal that was going on in that time. There's just so many ways. But I just want to point out the, the plain text here is that there was something, some form of harlotry in her life. She wasn't aligned to what Hosea had been living in. And God said, go take her as a wife. So things keep going on, right? And they have a few children. And, and prophetically, God has Hosea named them some really odd things. I wish I could touch on that, but I don't have time. Um, and something along the way, after a few children, starts going wrong in Gomer's heart. Life is good. Hosea's taking care of her. All her needs are met. But there's a, there's a disturbance in her soul somewhere. And she starts thinking, you know, maybe life was better before this. Maybe my old life had more. I mean, it seems that those systems, those are the things that are giving me my food. Those are the things that are giving me my finances. They're meeting my needs anyway. And something's happening in her heart. And eventually, heartbreakingly, she leaves Hosea, a righteous man who's caring for her. She goes back to an old path. And she starts playing the harlot again. In that time, things get really bad for her. Um, It's hard to understand totally from the text until you read later on and realize some things that Hosea wrote about the case she was in. But she went back to some kind of old lifestyle, whether that was some form of prostitution. Um, She found other lovers, we know. She was with other men. She's committed adultery outside of their marriage. Imagine the heartbreak for Hosea. Man, the, the person that I redeemed, she was living in this horrible lifestyle. I went and took her in. I took care of her. Now she's left me. I mean, imagine the heartbreak of that, that story. Things get bad. She realizes along the way, man, those weren't the things that were giving me what I needed. It was Hosea. 
Hosea was supplying my needs. Somewhere along the way, she finds herself in some form of prostitution or indentured servitude where she is owned by someone. And in chapter, um, chapter 3, God gives Hosea this unbelievable command. Go again and love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. God tells Hosea, I believe, go get Gomer. Go back to that woman that broke her heart. And here's what's amazing. God says, go buy her back. Buy her. She belonged to another man. So Hosea went and he took the funds that he had and he bought her back. Brought her back to his house. Redeemed her from the pit she had fallen into. And God gave Hosea this incredible command. Love her. God didn't just say, go get her, bring her back. God commanded Hosea, love her again. Now I read this story and it's just so remarkable to me. How could God command Hosea to do this? To go um, from his righteous lifestyle initially to a woman of harlotry, living a lifestyle that's so disaligned with everything God had commanded him. Then she falls back and then he tells him to go back again. I mean, can you imagine being Hosea? Then I realized, in this story, God isn't talking about um, me being Hosea. I'm Gomer. I walked back to other lovers. I was, a, I was living in sin. Separated from God. Yet Jesus came and he bought me back. And he loved me. My call isn't to go be a Hosea. My call is to be a Gomer and to return to the Lord when I'm bought back. Go back into his household and be a part of his family. See, that is the work of redemption of the cross. Olivia, would you come on up and and play as we close here. I, I just want to sing a song and have an opportunity for a little bit of a heart response as we step into Holy Week. This will be a familiar song that we all know. And, and as I close, I want to give these three reflections for you that you can think about as we sing this song. Three reflections that I believe Jesus gave Nicodemus when he was talking to him. Number one, Jesus told Nicodemus, as... Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so will the Son of Man be lifted up. I think Jesus was saying, before Nicodemus could ever understand, if you want to be born again, you need to look to the cross. And maybe you're in this room, and you've never looked to the cross as your source of redemption and salvation. Maybe you haven't been born again. And I want to invite you today, you can be born again. Number two... Jesus invited um, Nicodemus to believe in him. He said in verse 18, He who believes in him is not judged. He who doesn't believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Believing in the name of Jesus was his second call to Nicodemus. Believe in me. Maybe you've been born again, you've looked to the cross, 
But today you're struggling to believe, to place your faith in Jesus and believe in the work of the cross. And number three, Jesus' invitation to Nicodemus was to walk in the light. Jesus said here, uh, I haven't come to judge the world, but to save it. The judgment you see happens in our hearts when we're not walking with God. We're already judged in our state and the fact that we're separated from him. Sure, there will be a final judgment, but today we're judged. We've got sin. We've got a problem where we can't be made right with God and it's separating us from him. So when Jesus said, walk in the light, what does he mean? In John, uh, 1 John 1, 9, John said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. See, I think confession is a practice that we have greatly missed in the 21st century church as a whole. A lot of us have walked out of a Catholic tradition and left behind, in many ways rightfully so, the concept of confession to a priest. But we've lost an essential practice that Jesus gave Nicodemus here of walking into the light that John talked about, that James talked about. When we confess our sins, when we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Jesus' third call to walk in the light, how do we do it? By confession. Maybe you've got something in you, you've been born again, but you've got a sin that you haven't confessed before the Lord. Today I want to invite you as we sing to do that. Confession is the means to redemption. It breaks the hold that sin has on us. So those three things. Maybe you haven't been born again you need to look to the cross. Maybe you need to believe in him. Maybe you've walked away from your belief. And third, you need to walk in the light. Let's sing. Let's stand together.